seated. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be turning this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Somebody asked, um, so are, are we in a series now? We've uh, for a couple weeks had sermon here, sermon there, and I guess I should have explained the sort of loose sermon series that we're in is Life in the Church, number of things that uh, deal with our life and hear our worship together. And um, uh, it's a rather informal series, and I uh, will be going on to some other things soon. But uh, this evening we are turning to 1 Corinthians 14 and answering the question, who's worship for? Who's worship for? Uh, let's pick up in verse uh, 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Even so, you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen to your giving of thanks, since he doesn't understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other isn't edified. I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it's written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed and so falling down on his face he will worship God and report that God is truly among you how is it then brethren when you come together each of you has a psalm has a teaching has a tongue has a revelation has an interpretation let all things be done for edification if anyone speaks in a tongue let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and then let others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets 
are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Well, let's pray together again. Our Father in heaven, as you are the author, not of confusion, but of peace, of edification, of encouragement, of instruction from your word, we pray that here we might find again what we need, that we might be renewed in the spirit of our own worship and understanding. Oh, we pray that uh, we who come week after week and uh, who are in so many ways in a kind of routine might be shaken out of anything ordinary and remember the great God before whom we come and the great love that you have showered upon us. Oh, may all things be done not only for your glory, but also for our good and edification. And may, may people come in and worship God, confessing God truly is among us. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Why are you here? One of my professors pointed out that people come to worship on Sunday with all sorts of different ideas and expectations in mind. Things that they don't actually verbalize, but nevertheless the, the, the kind of uh, view or understanding that they have of worship may be very, very different from yours. For example, some people consider this to be a kind of classroom. And I am Professor Vance, and you are all my pupils. And you will hold your questions, please, until I am through my lecture. And if somebody later asks you, how was worship? You might say, oh, you made a couple good points for a change. Uh, or I enjoyed learning about this or that. Or, yeah, it was okay. I don't think you really brought out the context of these verses or something like that. Now, there's a very strong element of truth that Paul mentions in the passage. I hope that you are instructed. I hope that you learn something as you should. Edification is part of our worship, but this is not a classroom. Some regard this as a kind of therapy session. It's a rather large therapist's couch, and I'm your therapist. And uh, I hope that uh, you are comforted and uh, find your psychological needs that are met here. And so if somebody asks you, how was worship? You might say, oh, great. The message today was very positive. I left with a very good feeling inside. Well, again, there's a strong element of truth here. Worship is therapeutic or healing. The sound word, sound meaning healthy, right, is, is health to our souls. But, 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 but worship is not a therapist's couch. Some come week by week with a kind of expectation as a family reunion, a time for mutual celebration and encouragement. And how was worship? Well, maybe the thing that comes to mind for you is who was there, who you saw, who you missed, the kind of conversations you had, the people whom you talked to afterward if you left encouraged with all of your conversations. Well, a strong element of truth is here. We spend all week apart. We all come back together here. Uh, the people of God who are in a real way, the, uh, the family of God. And yet, this isn't a family reunion. Some perhaps consider this a, a, a kind of uh, welcome wagon for visitors and seekers, where the, the big goal would be to have somebody saved here every week. And uh, if you're a visitor, would you please uh, stand up? And we've got the, one of these nice little stickers 
for, for you to wear so that everyone after the service can thoroughly embarrass you and uh, you'll be the very much the focus of all of our attention because, uh, you know, this, this is a, uh, an evangelistic meeting after all. And if you ask how was worship, well, you know, it's all about the converts who were there or the people who are visiting. That's the goal. Uh, increasingly, I think, uh, probably especially an American point of view, people come here with the expectation that we're going to have a variety show, a variety show, which we don't really have variety shows on television anymore, right? except for a couple late night shows that have gotten so lame that nobody watches them anymore. Right? But uh, a, a variety show, do you know what that is? Like you know, a talk show, right, uh, is what we call them. But in, a, in, a, in an old-fashioned variety show, we say, hey, welcome. we got a great show for you here today. We're going to have the Ruber, Ruber Sisters here singing a great new number for us. And we'll have Fast Eddie playing with the band on sax. Uh, all the music, of course, is going to be happening up here. But you're very welcome to sing along, even though this is really a performance. I will tell them what monologue, and if nobody laughs, I'll say, look, is this thing on? Hello, hello. Uh, and you, uh, if somebody asks you how was worship, you would say, it's a radical. All right. Some consider this to be a kind of funeral home, a place where you're going to pay your respects. You get back and somebody says, how was worship? And you say, I'm glad I went. Perhaps all of these have some element of truth to them, but this is not a classroom, a therapy session, a reunion, a welcome wagon, a variety show, a funeral home, or anything else. The Church of Christ, where we have come today, is, verse 24, the place where we come above all to worship God and where, I quote, God is truly among us. That is the emphasis of the scripture from beginning to end. Where in the very first, at the, in the law, God commanded his people to come to Jerusalem. It was so that they might stand before the Lord and rejoice. And supremely, this is what we are here to do. It is not a classroom, not a therapist room. It is a throne room where the king has come to meet with you, his people. We turn today, though, to God's word to find out what this means practically for us and what that means for us week by week. I'd like to first to consider the passage and then three general principles from it. First, let's just set the stage here from the passage as I jumped into a, a passage that you think might have much more to do if I had a sermon on the charismatic movement or Pentecostalism or something like that. Um, what am I getting at here? Well, at the church in Corinth in these early days, you have to understand, first of all, there was no New Testament. I mean, can you imagine being a part of a church with no New Testament? Uh, this, uh, uh, almost certainly the second of Paul's letters, one earlier sent to Galatia that they probably didn't have, that there was no New Testament. The Bible they had was what you might call the Old Testament. They just called it the Scriptures. And that would be a challenge, would it not? To be a church with no New Testament. What were they to believe? What were they to do? How were they to organize and conduct themselves? How could they resolve problems? What teaching was there for them? Well, for this time of the church's infancy, God gave the people many prophets and prophetesses. God himself addressed the churches. Thus saith the Lord at this foundational time on a weekly basis. 
And there were also those who would prophesy the word of God in other languages or tongues by the Holy Spirit, so that when their words were interpreted, that this also served as a prophetic teaching uh, here instructing the church. Uh, yeah, instruction, a word of instruction is what it says here. Okay, so uh, th this was a very widespread phenomena, as you can gather here, is that uh, too many prophets were speaking, too many tongue speakers were speaking. Uh, God did not leave his people without any help or direction at this critical time. One big problem in Corinth is that people were particularly misusing the gifts of tongues in the worship of God, and much of the chapter deals specifically with that. What do I mean misusing the gift? I mean that uh, two of the three main purposes for which the gift was given were being ignored. Why, why were tongues given to the church? Well, first, as I said, to edify them, to instruct them. When interpreted, it's prophecy. When not, not interpreted, well, it can't edify anyone, Paul says. Second, uh, tongues were given as a sign to unbelievers. You remember how effective that sign was, for example, in Acts chapter 2, as, as the people from all over the world said, look, are, are not those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own language or tongue in which we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and so forth, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. And a great many people were converted that day, the power of that sign. The third reason of the gift of tongues was to bless the spirit of the speaker. Uh, this, Paul confesses, not the most important thing, but speaking by the Spirit in an unknown tongue, by the power and Spirit of God, it was a thrilling experience. And so Paul could say, I, I thank God that I do it more than all of you. And these were the three great purposes of tongues mentioned in this chapter, the edification of the church, the salvation of the unbeliever, and the strengthening of the believer. But the church in Corinth was greatly misusing tongues in specifically, and the prophetic gifts in general. People, it seems, were prophesying all at once. Wouldn't it be fun to have two people up here speaking at the same time? Would you guys enjoy that? No, you would not. Uh, it would be very, very confusing. Uh, they were doing it apparently simply because they could. Uh, maybe they thought they were strengthening themselves, but probably it seems from the chapter it was more for their own pride. Tongues were definitely getting rather out of hand. Uh, it seems that in many cases no interpretation was being given. <laughs> and what was the result of that? Well, believers couldn't understand a thing. And unbelievers, they, they come in and say, look, you people are out of your mind. This, to this confused congregation, Paul says, look, I, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all, yet in the church... I would rather speak five words with my understanding to teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right. So you see, this is the context in which Paul is dealing with, 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 with worship confusion. And Paul, to straighten them out, gives three general rules. He applies three general rules on things that must happen when we come together. And this is where it's helpful to us, because we don't have all these problems, thank the Lord, right? Though it would be thrilling to be there when the word of the Lord was being prophesied by several prophets week after week, don't you think? 
Well, we do have a more sure word of prophecy. I thank God for the New Testament. And uh, we have our own concerns. We have our own issues. We have our own struggles. And these three rules that he gives, these principles that are to guide our meetings, are super instructive to us today. And that's why I'll give them to you one at a time. Everything we do must be done with these three things in mind. First, worshiping and glorifying God. Worshiping and glorifying God. Two names for the same thing. We, we come here first and foremost, uh, Paul uses the word here, worship, to, to, to meet with God. And in the larger context, it's emphasized uh, throughout and uh, at various points, of course, in verse 25 here, I, meant, I underscored earlier, uh, he will worship God, falling down on his face. He'll worship God and report God is truly among you. This is the big picture of what's going on here. Uh, the throne room. This is where God meets with his people, his children. God is among us. God is here. He inhabits the praises of his people, and, and you people have come to sing his praise, to, to pray, to be heard on high by him, to worship and glorify him. William Guthrie, famous Scottish preacher of a great age, said, Less will not satisfy, and more could not be desired. We have come today, above all, to adore and worship a great king who is worthy to be loved with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, a God who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being and wisdom and power and holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Our God is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all that is in us. And when God brought his people out of Egypt, these were the instructions that he gave them. He said, you're going to build a house. And you're going to do it uh, in a particular way. And he says why, Exodus 25, 22, because there I will meet with you. And he gave instructions for every male to come, to enter his courts with joy, to appear before him three times a year, Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a year, all your males, that is in the whole nation, shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze. I pointed it out before, but I, I can't help pointing it out again. It just took amazing faith to be a worshiper of God in those days, right? All the men of the town, there on the border, with hostile nations nearby, leaving your wives, leaving your children, leaving your animals, leaving your goods, all the men clearing out and going to Jerusalem three times a year. And God said, anticipating the objection, Exodus 34, 24, don't worry, no man shall even covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord. Right? Not just that nobody's going to take your stuff. Nobody's going to even desire. Don't worry. You come and trust me. Come before him, Psalm 100, and rejoice. This is what we are doing. Jesus says, no longer on this mountain or Jerusalem, but everywhere, in spirit and in truth, this is what we are doing here. 
a number of years ago, R.C. Sproul was having a conversation with a very famous leader in the church today, a man who um, led a planting movement of a great number of evangelical churches throughout the United States and beyond. Um, but this man had been very deeply touched by R.C. Sproul's book called The Holiness of God, which I would recommend to you. And the man met with uh, R.C. and he said, um, R.C., I've been polling people about church, and they're telling me two things over and over. That church is boring and irrelevant. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to change church so that it's no longer boring and irrelevant. I'm going to make it exciting and entertaining, and I'm going to make it very relevant and practical. And this is going to transform Christianity, end quote. R.C. said back to him, Bill, look, nowhere in my Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, do I ever see a story of someone encountering God and being bored. <laughs> I find people encountering God and dying. I find some people encountering God and, encountering God and being terrified. I have found some people encounter God and their life is transformed. But I do not find anywhere in the Bible somebody encountering God and going away saying, you know, God is boring and irrelevant. So the problem is not with God. And it's not with revving up things at church so that the things are exciting and relevant. The problem is that there are many people who are simply not meeting the living God of the Bible, because there's nothing boring or irrelevant about him, anything but, end quote. What are we here for? Who is this for? Primarily, it's for God. To worship and glorify and praise and honor the God who is great and greatly to be praised. It's not a show. I'm not a performer. You are the performers. He is the audience. The audience of your worship. He seeks such worshipers. And we must take care not to lose, therefore, this sense of awe and reverence, joy and wonder. We're to nourish and cherish the sense of God's greatness and nearness when we call upon Him. Jacob, when he realized that God was there, awoke and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. Just got some chill bumps from that. In this passage, we're reminded that God is truly among us and that this is the greatness as we realize it ourselves again. We are reminded that also that to glorify God in worship, we must take direction from His own Word. Hence, all these instructions that are given, all these quotations from the Scriptures, uh, all of these things that are being then reminded to this church, all these instructions uh, uh, come with the summary statement in verse 37. Look, if anybody thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. It must be done according to His Word. Edification and salvation are just not the ultimate goal. They are not the rule for how things in the church might, are to proceed. 
I hope that you're edified. I hope that people fall down and are converted, confessing that Christ is really among us. But the first and most important thing is that God be worshipped and glorified according to his word. And you might think, think that by the arguments given today that people could do whatever they like in the church, well, as long as some are being saved and saints are being edified. No way. The Lord says, He is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak, but are to be submissive. As the law also says, verses 33 and 34. He continually brings forth the word of God, uh, Paul giving the Lord's own commands in these matters, that all things may be done decently and in order. Well, we must worship God according to his commands. We have a bunch of very great names for these and related doctrines, the sufficiency of Scripture, the regulative principle, liberty of conscience, and so forth. And what we mean, though, is we, we want to glorify God in the way that he has told us to do so, rather than, as Jesus says, in vain teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. We must care about the form of worship as we obey the Lord, and we must be very careful to not to forget the heart of worship, which is that he is truly a great God and here with us. So we, we must not just focus so much on the form to ne neglect the, a coldness that is creeping in. Our first concern above all is that we might worship before the Lord our God, glorifying him, being mindful of his commands, faithful to his word. May God be worshiped and glorified in this hour. That's the big purpose. But second, all things also at the same time must be done for the edification of the church. I mean, the tongue speaker blesses God. That's the purpose of worship, point one. But it doesn't edify anybody. So Paul says, let him keep quiet. Not only must everything be done ultimately for the glory of God, but also for the edification of the church. And like obedience to God, point one, this is not optional either. Verse 26, let all things be done for edification. And this is also why love is required for the right use of every gift. That famous love chapter, the previous chapter, verse chapter 13, stuck right in the middle of this whole section on the gifts of the Spirit. Hey, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, or though I have the gift of prophecy and all mysteries and understanding and knowledge, but I have not love, I, I'm nothing. You have to use your gifts in love, that is for other people, for the edifying of the church. It doesn't matter how great your gifts are. What are they doing? You can't do anything in worship that's not first glorifying to God according to his word and second edifying to the body. Nothing. No, not nothing. Not a thing. In the assembly, you must have all spiritual gifts used for the edification of all or keep quiet. Uh, let me give you one or two small examples that I've thought about. Maybe you have your own that you could tell me, or maybe you see that there's something here that is just not, not happening. A uh, good friend of mine uh, is helping plant a church near Charlotte. He uh, sent me a copy of their first bulletin, and there, the, the first thing listed in the order of service, like ours, the first thing listed in the bulletin was votum, Psalm 124, verse 8. All right, I have a master's of divinity, and I have no idea what a votum is. What is a votum? Anyone here know what a votum is? I mean, we're a Presbyterian church, so you can't raise your hand, but like blink twice or something, right? <laughs> I, I, I looked it up. I had to look it up. 
Uh, votum is the Latin word for a prayer, desire, or vow. Oh, okay, all right. And uh, in context here, uh, it is a, uh, a, a certain um, uh, statement that uh, sets the tone for worship. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Oh, gosh, okay. Standard opening to many Dutch churches, by the way. Okay. At the, at the beginning of the service, it's traditional, especially in continental Reformed churches, to begin with an expression of our desire that God who made the heaven and the earth should be our help even now in worship. Uh, that uh, desire is in Latin a votum, so in the bulletin, votum. Get it? All makes sense when it's explained. And yet as Paul asks here, look, how, how can the uninformed say amen? Since he doesn't understand what you say. God's not the author of confusion. It's a very little example. It's a very safe example because it's not, it's not one here and uh, not one that we've uh, run into. So it's something which is fine and spiritual and, uh, and right can be done in a way that is, is utterly confusing, even to God's own people. I, I, wonder, I, I wonder with some fear, what are we doing here that causes first-time visitors to come in and say, what is going on? Are these people out of their mind? What are we creating among the uninformed or the unbelieving? If they don't understand something from God's word that we read or something from God's word that we sing, can't be helped, but God's word has power one way or the other. It's going to accomplish his purposes. Okay, but what I'm saying is uh, anything else that we are doing, are we doing it not only just according to God's word, are we doing it to the edifying of the church in a way that's understandable? Even to the unbeliever or uninformed person who comes in, Paul points out, which is our third purpose of worship. Who's worship for? Well, of course, ultimately for God. And then approximately uh, for, for us, for your edification, for your instruction. Uh, words that Paul uses here. But third, it is for the convicting and converting of unbelievers. The convicting and converting of unbelievers. Wait a minute, what did I say? Who's worship for? Unbelievers, is that what I said? We have a lot of discussion and confusion about that today. People go back and forth about know whether worship is for believers or is it for unbelievers. Unbelievers can't worship, can they? Somebody says, uh, I'm not going to explain all this now, except to say that uh, worship is what God commands all people to do, all the peoples and all the nations of the earth. And th it is a purpose for worship. All people who are expected to be there, even in the court of the Gentiles in those old days, or now, of course, uh, not, not in Jerusalem or anywhere, but, but here, this is the place where people from all the earth are invited to worship, are commanded to worship. A worship which is true can only be done in spirit and in truth, so only spirit-filled believing people can worship God acceptably. But even unbelieving people are addressed with the intent of convicting and converting them. Those great calls to worship, it's not just for the people of God to come, it's for all the people of all the nations to come before him. Won't go too far down that line, but in many of those calls to worship here, Psalm 100, verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all you lands. 
Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. Again and again, everyone is called from among all the earth, commanded to come and to worship before this great God. Unbelievers are addressed directly in these Psalms and other places. Yes, worship is first for the glory of God. It is secondly for the edification of his people. Nevertheless, in worship, unbelievers are also addressed. And this is why... In the matter of this gift of tongues, Paul says, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. So, you know, why do we have this whole thing called tongues? Why don't we just have prophecy? I mean, it's so much simpler. Everybody immediately understands. You don't even have to worry about an interpreter, right? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be just so much nicer simply to have prophecy? This is the point, Paul says. How could this man, who's never learned that language, speak it? and declare the very oracles of God in such a way as you are pierced to the heart. Acts 2, other places, right? It's a sign. It's not for believers. It's for unbelievers. And this must be done in the church in a way that glorifies God, in a way that edifies the church, and in a way so that the unbeliever doesn't say, I don't know what you're talking about. If he's going to have an interpreter, if he's going to to speak in tongues, there better be somebody there to interpret so that all understand. Tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And in the assembly, Paul lays down this rule, you must be using your gifts in a way that all unbelievers can understand, at least so far as that they may be convinced and convicted and converted to the Lord. Verse 23, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say you're out of your mind? What if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in and he's convinced by all, he's convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. This is also the purpose. The focus of worship is the glory of God, requiring obedience through his word. It is for the edification of the church, which requires true and clear instruction. It's also that the unbelieving might be convicted and convinced and brought to worship the Lord with us, who is truly among us, which requires this convicting application of God's word. Um, I you know, uh, hadn't sang song, uh, Psalm 7 in a while, uh, reading through the, pro- the burden against Babylon, um, them some pretty sharp words, were they not? I don't know, if you brought a friend, you might be thinking, oh, kind of squirm a little bit here, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a bit embarrassing to, to hear about the God who judges the nations, who rules among them, who brings their deeds back upon them. Hmm. But such is the kind of God that is able to convict and to convince and to have people to flee from the wrath to come, because you know Babylon, Babylon just prefigures that great day of judgment. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Revelation 18, Revelation 19. We should not seek merely to entertain. That is the temptation, to put on such a wonderful, encouraging show that everyone would feel very comfortable and glad that they came and not be confronted with the God with whom we have to do. 
to have to fall down, be convicted, and so forth. Let me read you a classic statement um, wrongly attributed to Charles Spurgeon. Uh, it's on the Monergism site by Charles Spurgeon. I thought it was by Spurgeon. Several other places on the internet by Spurgeon, but actually has a different author. But the, the, the article is called Feeding Sheep or Amusing Goats. Uh, it, it says, an evil is professed in the camp of the Lord, so gross in its impudence that the most short-sighted can hardly fail to notice it. During the past few years, it's developed at an abnormal rate, even for evil. It's worked like leaven until the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. My first contention is that providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scriptures as a function of the church. If it's a Christian work, why didn't Christ speak of it? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's clear enough. Where do the entertainers come in? The Holy Spirit is silent concerning them. Were the prophets persecuted because they amused the people or because they refused? The concert has no martyr role. Again, providing amusement is in direct antagonism to the teaching and life of Christ and his apostles. Had Christ introduced more of the bright and pleasant elements into his mission, he would have been more popular when they went back because of the searching nature of his teaching. But I did not hear him say, oh, run after these people, Peter, and tell them that we'll have a different style of service tomorrow, something short and attractive with a little preaching. We will have a pleasant evening for the people. Tell them they will be sure to enjoy it. Be quick, Peter. We must get these people somehow. Jesus pitied sinners, sighed and wept over them, but he never sought to amuse them. In vain will the epistles be searched to find any trace of the gospel of amusement. The mission of amusement produces no converts. The need of the hour for today's ministry is earnest spirituality. The need is biblical doctrine so understood and felt that it sets men on fire. End quote. Thanks for letting me read a long one to you. But you see, this... the. Uh, uh, a biblical ministry in obedience to God, point one. Not only does its work in edifying and instructing the saints, point two, but then in convincing and converting the sinner, laying the secrets of his heart's bare in order that he too may fall down and worship God and say God is truly among you. In conclusion, people report that there are some activities ooh, which deeply, deeply satisfy the human soul, painting a picture, composing a poem, Scaling a cliff, riding a horse, uh, such activities are those in which sometimes people are taken up and lost in the moment, yet powerfully aware, if, if anything, having an expanded mind and consciousness being in the, that, that moment. But the knowledge of God is the highest enjoyment of which our minds are capable. And the worship of God is the noblest, sublimest enjoyment of the human spirit. In the transcendent sight of God by the soul, we find the answer for which we were created. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, 
just as by the Spirit of the Lord. When George Whitfield preached, one man said, he made God look big. That was his great secret. One young boy, when he was dying, said, I want to go to Mr. Whitfield's God. And so he did shortly. This sets everything that we're doing on the Lord's day in perspective. Psalm 73, it is good for me to draw near God. And it is good. And I want you to draw near. Is anyone here tonight far away? Far away from that Lord. Not wanting to have a meeting with God. Uh, you know, as Adam and his wife, right at the beginning, they, they sinned and they, they fled the presence of the Lord and hid among the trees of the garden. But you know what? Thank God, God found them. God covered them. And God promised them a great Redeemer. And God proved that there is a reason that He is worthy of such love and admiration. For all perfections are found in Him, even forgiveness. And so I say to you, God is infinitely better than even the best of men. It is good to draw near to God. Let us do so once again in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for uh, such clarity and so many things that uh, confuse and perplex the minds of your people even today. We do pray that as uh, we learn and grow, that you should more and more be glorified in us and among our assembly, in our very hearts, that we might be more and more built up and instructed and, and led in the way that we should go to your glory. We pray that that more and more should come and to join with us, be convinced of all and convicted of all, and join us in saying God truly is among us. May you be glorified in us. Father.